0: Welcome to the December edition of AML Now. I'm John Byrne and uh, what you're about to hear is a lengthy but very compelling description of a number of areas related to human trafficking and human smuggling that has become such a major challenge for all of us, whether in the AML community or beyond. I was fortunate to sit down to two uh, dedicated staffers for Polaris. Sarah Crow and David Medina, and you're going to hear in a few minutes uh, the extensive work that they've been doing at Polaris, and they're going to give you some advice regarding some practical things that we can be doing in the AML community or continue to do. I found this to be particularly uh, important as we close out 2017 uh, to think about ways in which we can improve society, and certainly this is clearly one of them. So sit back and enjoy this conversation I had with Sarah Crow and David Medina of Polaris. So Sarah and David, I really appreciate uh, you folks taking time with me today. Um, what I want to try to do is I want to do a couple things. Uh, I want to let the audience have a better appreciation for Polaris and the great work you folks have been doing. A little bit of a historical perspective, um, how folks can get involved. And then uh, I know, David, you've done some specific research on some areas that we'd like to talk about. And then I know there's some, uh, some advocacy that's going to be going on later in 2018 in a number of areas. And I just want to get people focused, focused on that because what we found at ACAMS is uh, the banking members and the government folks, because the government folks have actually been pretty engaged, um, have continually asked us, how can we help in this horrific area you know, how can we do more and and as uh, folks have been to our conferences know that sarah you and some of your colleagues have participated in a number of our conferences and webinars and, and that's really probably been the more the most um well-attended sessions that we have because this issue obviously impacts everybody it's not certainly not just uh uh, foreign it's domestic as i think you guys know much better than i could ever know so sarah so let's talk about polaris how long have you guys been in uh existence kind of how did it get started and tell us a a little bit about what what you do and how you folks are funded and, and sort of some of the areas and priorities that you have
1: yeah sure um so polaris was founded 15 years ago to work on the issue of human trafficking or slavery. The goal has always been to eradicate modern-day slavery, um, which is a very lofty goal. Um, It's going to take a long time, but um, something that we all feel very passionately about. Um, And the reason it was actually Polaris was founded was um, partially as the founders Kat Chon and Derek Ellerman. We're learning about human trafficking, kind of the realization that it was happening here in the US and, and kind of in their backyard. Kat had actually seen an article about a massage business um, that was charged with trafficking in her neighborhood and that really spoke to her and inspired her um, to start working on this issue. So just knowing that it was such a problem here in the United States as well as globally um, was a big piece of the motivation for starting the the organization Um, and the goal has always been to work um, globally but the focus for the last 15 years has been largely concentrated in the United States Um, so we do consult and help organizations externally um, or or uh, internationally Um, but most of our programming is focused in the U.S. Um, our largest program is that we operate the US National Human Trafficking Hotline, um, which is the federal government's official hotline on human trafficking. It's uh, partially it's funded by the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, their funding makes up about 50% of the actual budget to operate the hotline. Um, so we, we raise the remainder from, from individual donors and, and um, foundations and that sort of thing. Um, But our goal, uh, that program is answering calls 24 hours a day, um, 365 days a year um, from all over the country on situations of human trafficking. Sometimes that is a victim calling directly, they might be in a crisis situation, they're trying to leave a controller, Um, they might be in a very dangerous situation. Sometimes they're calling years later asking for support services. Sometimes it's someone calling on behalf of a friend or family member to get support. Um, And we're playing a lot of different functions with connecting uh, uh, survivors and and victims to services on the ground in their community. Um, And then also facilitating reports to law enforcement so we can uh, report human trafficking to law enforcement um, confidentially. We we don't necessarily need to share the name of the, the person reporting. Which means, sorry. No, it's okay. So
0: um, with law enforcement, law enforcement, federal as well as state, obviously.
1: Yes. Um, So I think historically, federal law enforcement really took a lead in um, investigating a lot of human trafficking cases. But over the last, um, I would say about 10 years, the landscape has shifted a lot because a lot of local law enforcement have been... Trained on the issue of human trafficking, and now all over the country, there are you know different configurations depending on the community. But um, there will be cap task forces that are kind of interagency task forces working on that, and you'll see you know uh, federal law enforcement represented, HSI or ICE, um, FBI, and then also local you know the city police department, um, state police, that sort of thing. Um, so it's it, it really takes the shape of the community and what works in that community and who's kind of present and engaged there, which means that who receives our tips also depend on the city and and the state. So we have, I think, something like 200 different protocols um, covering every region of the country and who receives the tips depends on the city and state. Who's there, who's worked with us in the past, who has a good track record, and who wants the cases. So
0: you mean by protocol, you mean like a like a template. So it's a number yeah. of things that you check off, and that tells you where the information goes?
1: Essentially, yeah. yes. Yeah. So Chicago, okay, it's you know, it's a sex trafficking situation involving a minor. This is the agency that we know is taking those tips. And typically the task forces or the law enforcement on the ground kind of have a system of um, figuring out jurisdiction and what cases they're the best equipped to work sometimes that works better than others um but that's something that we're kind of constantly refining and then also constantly updating to make sure that we're tr- giving people the best localized response we can even though we are a national hotline
0: how, ma- how many folks work for polaris total
1: so it's just about a hundred mm-hmm. um the majority of those staff are on the the hotline, the hotline. Oh. yeah and um I'd say about half of the hotline staff are part-time employees because, again, we need overnights, we need weekends, Um, but, um, yeah, it's about 100.
0: So when you talked about the the protocols and connecting with state and local Mm -hmm. and the feds, do you have regular communication slash meetings with these folks so that you can update your protocols or you sort of do it on your own?
1: Yes, well, a little bit, you know, it's sort of all of ZPub. Um, sure. So we have a couple of teams that work very closely with law enforcement, including some people from the hotline team, but then also um, our, what we call our disruption strategies team that spends a lot of time training law enforcement. Um, and so some of those law enforcement agencies are very used to this kind of process of updating our protocols, they'll very proactively reach out to us, or we'll regularly have meetings with them. For others um, that maybe don't get a lot of cases, it's not the top of mind all the time. And then we need to, when a case does come up, we need to make sure that those protocols are up to date. Um, So it's just a ton of work constantly um, checking those. And I mean, agents will change. I used to be in charge of Indiana where I had a different FBI agent assigned to human trafficking. I think we had like three or four in a year. So that was just you know, every time FBI assigned a new person, I needed to update all of those protocols. Um, so it can be a lot of work, um, but we think it's important to make sure we're, we're figuring out who is the best suited in that community to respond to that case.
0: Let, let me ask you, I want to go to David in a moment, but um, uh, you've, you've been kind enough to do a number of programs for us. I don't think it ever hurts to sort of explain again high level the different aspects of trafficking and smuggling that you folks cover.
1: Yes. So that's a good point. Um, So just a quick overview um, for those of you who who haven't been working on this day in and day out the way I have. Um, So human trafficking is um, essentially modern day slavery. It's when someone's made to work against their will or made to engage in what we call commercial sex against their will. For those of you who aren't familiar with that term commercial sex, um, that's essentially prostitution. Um, There's also a provision in the law that anyone under the age of 18 involved in prostitution is automatically considered a victim of trafficking because they are considered too young to consent to that activity. Um, But for adults, um, there needs to be some elements of force, fraud, or coercion involved. And so that can take a lot of different forms. Um, some of the examples David's going to talk about are maybe not what a lot of people picture when they think of, think of trafficking, um, but quick overview, I mean it's really not like the movie Taken necessarily, <laughs> there can be physical abuse involved but sometimes um, it's more a situation of debt bondage or um, some sort of other coercive um, activity, threats to deport someone, threats to blacklist someone and make sure they never get another job in the future um it can take a lot of different forms
0: i'm, I'm going to come back to you because i want to sort of connect what you folks are working on with the financial sector because right. there's been some uh obviously some work streams created that we'll talk about but uh, david i know you've been doing a lot of different types of research but one area that you've focused on has to do with um, uh, recruiting individuals the recruitment industry that deals with these h2 guest worker programs Talk a little bit about that, and then if you would sort of the data sources, and then you know, a couple questions there with labor recruitment. How does what does the supply chain look like? If you talk about that as well, and then of course, how does it connect to the financial sector? So, so one of the challenges for the AML community has been they want to do so much, right? So they they sort of understand traditional is the wrong word. Sort of the basic sex trafficking, slavery issue, but there's so many other areas where people are forced to do things against their will, and if the financial sector can figure out ways of looking at activity, transactional activity that's indicative of that, then they can be obviously more helpful in reporting it and and hopefully helping you folks sort of identifying those issues and, and maybe even prevent some of that. So talk a bit about the research that you've been working
2: on. Great. Thank you, John. Um, I'll, I'll begin by doing a, a bit of a cursory overview of, of what the H-2A program looks like. Then I'll offer uh, some more information about the labor recruitment supply chain in agriculture and uh, finish off with uh, with a, a story uh, connecting an actual case that was became a, a litigation matter a couple of years ago that involved labor trafficking. Um, and a grower here in the United States. So, so first of all, from individuals who are not familiar with the H-2A visa guest worker program, the H-2A visa is a, is a visa that's administered um, via the Department of Labor. A grower or a farmer in the United States can apply to get a certification to bring in a worker from another country um, to uh, work in specifically in the industry of agriculture that's usually a seasonal job. Mm-hmm. Um, it may last anywhere from six months to a year, um, but the individual worker, when they come to work at that grower, they are, their visa is solely tied to that grower. So it's non-transferable. They can't just pick up and move to a different farm. To do so would forfeit their visa and they would then become an illegal uh, or unauthorized uh, immigrant in this country. Um, a couple of figures about the H2A. Um, all. In 2006, we, there was a total of 134,368 H-2A visas issued to workers. Um, that was a 14% increase from the previous year in 2005, a total of 160% increase uh, since 2006. Um, approximately half of those job, job, H-2A jobs went to five states. Those states are Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, Washington State, and California. And Mexico actually is uh, the country that supplied 94% of the workforce that filled those H 2A visas. A figure for this year, as of October 1st, we've already surpassed 200,000 uh, H 2A certifications. Now, a very key component of H 2A in this guest worker program, the work that I'm doing in, in researching labor trafficking and agriculture, is that U.S. law governing uh, the visa. Uh, forbids employers from charging any recruitment fees. So if I am a grower, a pickle grower in North Carolina and I get a guest worker from Mexico via the H2A program to come and work on my farm, I have to make sure that on top of the wage that I am paying that worker, I reimburse them for any expenses that they had in getting to my farm. That includes any recruitment fees, which are forbidden under the program, but they do tend to happen in the uh, origin country, and the transportation fees. Um, Now, when you look at the labor recruitment supply chain, it it pretty much operates in an unregulated world market. Let let, let me just um, uh, stop you for a second.
0: I'm guessing that not all employers follow these rules the way they're supposed to. So a lot of these individuals are being taken advantage of. They're not getting either the pay that they were promised or all the other aspects that you've talked about. And that's sort of what your research is telling us, right?
2: Exactly. And and what's happening is is workers are arriving uh, one already vulnerable to their place of work but they're indebted so you have a situation of debt bondage now that bondage may not necessarily be to the grower that they are working at but it could be to a group, a bank or an individual back at home um, in their source country because and I'll go into this later uh, an individual uh, who applies to enter the guest uh, worker program you know there's a cost that comes with that in terms of gaining information and gaining access to the individuals who can facilitate the visa application, obtaining the visa and then connecting them to the grower in the United States. So the labor recruitment supply chain is it's an interesting phenomenon because these individuals facilitate um, the opportunity for a grower to receive a worker and they operate in a place where they are merchants of information. So they know they have connections with different farms and producers here in the United States and they know what the process is like. Therefore, and oftentimes, sadly, they use that as leverage against individuals who don't have that information. And that's where you get situations of exploitation. Um, And unfortunately, uh, the way that the the structure of the system is uh, these recruiters are delivering heavily indebted and vulnerable workers to their place of work, where they then experience more exploitation and trafficking, as Sarah said, where they could be coerced by blacklisting or uh, isolation or different methods where their needs are withheld from them. You you mentioned banks, so banks in the host
0: country, so Mexican banks and banks in other, so are are part of this as well, or or can
2: be? Sometimes, yeah. Uh, There was one situation uh, in particular that uh, this actually involved workers coming on the H-2A program from Thailand, where the fees that they were being charged were so large that they couldn't afford them, so they would go to a local bank. They were escorted to those banks by their recruiters who already had a scheme going under, knowing that there was no way that these individuals were ever going to get out of their situation. This actually became a pretty major federal case. Unfortunately it didn't end in the, um, the favor of many of the individuals who were victims to it, but the case as it was back in 2001 it was 400 victim, uh, victims victims wow. from uh, Thailand who were working um, on behalf of a recruiter known as Global Horizons Manpower, which is based in California, but was delivering indebted workers from Thailand to Hawaii, California, Washington, Nevada. Um,
1: and just to jump in for a minute, part of the reason um, David has you know, been really d- diving into the agricultural sector and industry um, is that we do believe it's probably the industry that within the US has the most victims of trafficking on the labor trafficking side of things. Um, And something that's sort of interesting about this and I think interesting from, if you work at a financial institution, is that while a lot of trafficking um, can involve, you know, a business that has one or two, you know, less than 10 employees. It's kind of a small-scale operation. Agriculture is really not that that way. A lot of these farms will have something like 400 um, workers at a time and so the business and the, the amount of money that's involved is actually pretty big. Um, so we've been really fascinated by trying to truly understand this industry and how people are so frequently exploited um, because the payoff for intervening is quite significant.
0: I know you're gonna cover this David, but what agencies or law enforcement entities go after these violators?
2: Uh, you guys are doing the research, right? right. But who's <laughs> who's doing it or is that part of the challenge? Very interesting. Part of the challenge <laughs> is how isolated uh, many of these farms are. Uh, we've, I've seen cases in my research in which a law enforcement official or partner can find out about uh, an allegation and by the time they get to the farm uh, the farmers have kind of caught on or have already intimidated the workers to a degree that sure. the workers are afraid of law of even interacting with law enforcement. But what entities go after them? Is it the FBI? Is it Homeland Security? It,
1: well, the, the,
2: it the problem
1: is that not a lot of these cases have really been so super seriously pursued okay. um, by law enforcement. Um, it could be the FBI, it could be HSI. Um,
0: States too, state is, It could be
1: more local law enforcement. Yeah. Um, part of the challenge in law enforcement um, being able to take this on is a couple fold. One, just the the f- absolute fear of the workers. Um, sure. So sometimes not really wanting to cooperate with law enforcement. Um, And when you're a victim of a crime like this, law enforcement really needs that to build their case and bring a prosecution. It's another reason why we really want to get the financial sector involved because, um, you know, money laundering crimes and other kind of financial crimes aren't gonna be as dependent on victim testimony. And for a lot of these people who depend on finding agricultural jobs in the U.S. to um, to support their families, there's a huge fear of speaking out.
2: Yeah, sure. And, and blacklisting is a big part of that. And when I'll get to blacklisting it later. of the employees. Yeah, meaning yeah, sure. that they can they will be put on a list where the recruiter or the staffing agency that brought them to the United States uh, will make sure that they do not get a job again in the United States.
0: How often do these folks come back? Like, if they're not blacklisted, uh, would the same individual be? doing
2: this for years and years? Yeah, you yeah. often have individuals who've been at the same farm for up to 20 years, but the gotcha. situation kind of becomes gradually worse and then they'll call in and say, hey, I've been here this long, the abuse has just gotten that much worse, never said anything because of this factor. Sure, uh, sure. But, you know, it's it's unbearable. Yeah. Um,
1: and sometimes the, the situation was pretty bad just to start with, but there's kind of a, a difference that somehow escalated it to them Being really intolerable for them to stay, Um, and so it can be quite heartbreaking hearing what some of these callers think of as kind of normal labor conditions um, would be conditions that, for most Americans, are kind of unfathomable.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So moving forward with the labor recruitment supply chain, um, just looking at it through the labor trafficking lens. This is an industry that employs abusive tactics to deliver indebted and vulnerable workers to employers, Um, victims of of labor trafficking in agriculture, experience abuse and exploitation along a continuum, uh, beginning with recruitment and entrapment, transportation and movement, the labor trafficking victimization itself, and then the victims' efforts to seek help and eventual escape. Now for growers and employers in the industry of agriculture, using an intermediary almost insulates them from the liability of some of the recruitment abuses and practices that begin in the source country. Um, As I mentioned earlier, U.S. law prohibits uh, employers to charge any recruitment fees who who are bringing in workers under the H-2A system. Uh, However, growers can insulate themselves by using recruiters or agencies abroad who charge them the fees but deliver the worker without, with, with, why, when the grower can then kind of use this thin veil of, of, um, of ignorance, as I know we were not aware that this was sure. what was happening, or sure. this was the case. Um, <clears throat> now, the, the harm to, to migrants are generated, certainly generated by anomalous bad actors. And I'm going to touch on that, but a lot of it is, is their structural problems in the, A2, in the H2 system. Uh, Particularly because it's, it's functionally unregulated. Labor recruiters are unregulated and are able to charge fees for access to scarce and desirable low wage jobs abroad. So, if you think about a worker in Mexico today in 2017, the average, the minimum average for a worker in a day is $4. Wow. And if they can come in as a H2A guest workers and earn $11 in the state of Nevada, then you know there's a there's something that, cr- that creates a little bit of leverage and attraction for the worker to be able to come sure. here legally. Um, so you know, what does this what does this look like? And uh, this is very uh, very very it's, it's very interesting because um, employers and growers work with one or more recruitment agencies that are nominally independent. This ranges from H two specialist agencies like MAS labor, or MAS labor, or CSI, Consular Solutions, Inc. labor services, uh, which are handle recruitment of workers in the source country of Mexico. And then you have recruiters here in in the United States, such as the North Carolina Growers Association, which I'll refer to as the NCGA, and then the Washington Farm Labor Association, or WAFLA, which are based in the United States. These operate as staffing agencies. Once they receive the certification, they receive a worker, then they'll place a worker at a grower. So oftentimes a a worker coming on the H2 visa will actually work for WAFLA and not for the actual grower which creates an interesting dynamic as well. And this
1: can be very complicated when people call in um, because we're trying to figure out, you know, who do you owe this debt to? Who is exploiting you? Who is giving you these threats? Is it your employer? Um, And it's really hard to figure out. For most of the workers, they don't necessarily truly understand the relationship between all of these different entities and who they're directly working for and who, um, and therefore what, what they should be expecting from from that entity, um, and and so figuring this out is quite complicated and and often needs to be done by looking through business records and financial records um, because you can't necessarily expect the the victim to understand these very complex sure, right. sort of business structures.
2: You got to do a lot of digging, so, <laughs> and like I said, you know, migrants operate in a marketplace of scarce and incomplete information. Just to show you a little, uh, a little to explain a little bit about how complex this is. Um, a firm like the North Carolina Growers Association uh, ha- is an association of growers or farmers in the state of North Carolina. They join this firm so that the firm can facilitate and help them navigate the federal H-2A guest worker program. So the association
0: is doing that on behalf. It's of doing that, that. on yep.
2: behalf of the of the uh, of the farmers who yep. pay a fee sure. to be able to part uh, sure. to be a part of the association who handles the logistics. Sure. Okay, we'll submit your certification we'll transport the worker, we'll deliver them to your farm. Um, so a firm like the NCGA, their activities include collecting, uh, the collection of labor certification applications, the navigation of the federal bureaucracy, provision of aid to employers in compliance with federal regulations, serving as an intermediary between employers and workers. The NCGA was established in 1989 by a gentleman by the, uh, by the name of Stan Yuri. It represents about a thousand growers in the state of North Carolina as well as Georgia and Virginia. CSI Labor Services is a firm that operates and works with NCGA on the Mexican end, in terms of recruitment. It was actually established by Stan Uri, the same individual who founded the NCGA. <clears throat> it is one of the largest H2 agencies in Mexico, headquartered in Monterrey, with offices around the country. Um, it does not have a web presence. Now, CSI also has ties to WAFLO, which is the Washington Farm Labor Association operating in the state of Washington. Um, and according to its annual report in 2014, it provided it with 24,000 H2 workers. Uh, you'll find a lot of this kind of information already open as open source. Now I want to note that the founder, Stan Yuri, the former director, he's no longer a director at NCGA and the founder of CSI, was actually uh, taken to court back in 2015 when he and several co-conspirators were named in an 87 count federal indictment for visa fraud, money laundering, racketeering, and defrauding the US visa system. So, so these folks that were creating these associations, they're part of
0: the problem, obviously. Yes, they understand
2: so, the structures and they have a methodology for how to yeah. exploit it.
0: Let, let me get you to, to to move on a bit, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. on how the financial sector, based on all this information, and I assume, Sarah and David, that some of this information is available on your website, uh, or at least in some of your reporting. But how, get, let's give the financial sector some practical advice, Okay. given all this, how, how horrific it is. And obviously, uh, these individuals are being taken advantage of. It sounds like it's constant. Uh, quick aside, I, I have no idea, are the
2: immigration issues that are going on now in Congress, do they impact this at all? Absolutely, okay. when you look at the, if you look at just the, the, the period of the last 10 years, um, migration into the country by undocumented people's has actually gone down right so that decline has coincided with the increase in h2a guesswork. Okay, gotcha. so more farms are applying to receive certifications to bring labor in because there is actually a labor shortage sure where they used to have previously undocumented workers filling those um, those positions now they have to go and go through the system which has created a marketplace for more recruiters to operate right. and kind okay. of operate as merchants of labor so give us give us some advice. Um
0: if you guys were sitting with a room full of bankers, uh, and we kind of did do this a few mm-hmm. weeks ago, obviously, and many of them had not heard of these issues. And and so again, what you've talked about is very compelling. What can they do in terms of transactional reviews or other sort of due diligence that could sort of help uh, put a spotlight on, on issues like
2: this? Mm-hmm. Okay, so. A couple of financial indicators or red flags to watch out for um, includes uh, if you have an employer with a record of fines paid or cases against them by the Department of Labor, the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. You know some of these individuals can be repeat offenders so in the case that I just gave the NCGA while they had violations against them and their director, the director actually served prison time and paid multiple fines and is no longer listed on the corporate registry of the organization but as of October 1st NCGA has actually received the majority of certifications that have been given for the year 2017 so they're still full speed and operating at full strength but the individual is no longer involved as far, the, as far as you know as far as we know although the headquarters is based on property that is still owned by that individual so I did some research on the land deeds of where the headquarters of the NCEGA is based, and it's actually on. A, a who property. went? Who went after them? Like, what entity was it? This? The Department of Labor. Okay. Okay. Yeah, right. the Department of Labor went after them for okay. the visa fraud that happened, and. You know, Department or, of Labor under the previous administration. Uh, uh, exactly, yeah. Course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, <laughs> this individual had also defrauded many of the farmers who were a part of the association because he was charging them fees that he was wow. making up artificial fees, saying, okay, I'm bringing in this worker. I'm going to charge you, I believe it was about a between $180 to $200 per worker um, when they shouldn't have. he shouldn't have been charging those sure. fees. So he was using the system in his favor. And la- the lack of information that the migrants had and the lack of information that the growers had um, and he was caught for that. All right. So the red flags? Some of those red flags, so the, though you can watch out for repeat offenders um, on that. Uh, you can look up, You know, watch out for business accounts with frequent outbound wire transfers with no business or apparent lawful purpose directed to countries at higher risk for human trafficking. Some of these countries include the places where, uh, or payments to staffing agencies or foreign recruiters in those countries, such as Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, the Philippines, India, Thailand. I, I list those countries because those are uh, ca- you can find cases in which recruiters from those countries have been noted to participate in rec- uh, abusive recruitment tactics. Um, so, <laughs> there's so many that it, it, it's, there, yeah. So a lot okay. of
1: uh, payroll discrepancies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you know, lack of certain expenditures, payments for workers' comp, that that sort of thing. Um, paychecks that maybe are inconsistent with having a full-time but minimum wage job. That can be a little bit tricky to figure out. Um, these workers are often paid for piecemeal what they pick, although that is not supposed to be the case. Um, a lot of deductions um, or or evidence that a worker is maybe paying money back to their employer for for different fees or a debt, um, that can be tricky. but but something that's kind of a a red flag and then I think also um, you know for financial institutions really doing some know your customer checks and understanding that the agricultural sector is maybe a high-risk industry especially there are certain crops that seem to be more frequently cited um, in cases of exploitation so for instance um, tobacco um, is a crop that the actual uh, way you harvest tobacco is extremely labor-intensive um, and so the conditions there can be really bad and there are um, health issues associated with harvesting those crops um, so you know if you have um, someone in your in your pro- portfolio who is associated with tobacco farming you know that's maybe an, a, a business I would do a little bit more looking into than another type of business. Forever.
0: let's um let's shift gears and, and and go back uh to something sarah that uh, we've all been uh working on uh, the private or the the financial sector as well as you as you folks and law enforcement uh, to to a large degree and that's um sort of expanding on financial indicators so that banks can can report human trafficking on suspicious activity reports and, and that sort of thing uh just for our audience's uh information uh, there's, a gr- there's a group of bankers with the Polaris staff that have met recently, and we're, we're going to put together some work streams. But basically, it's building off of something that's public, and that's a, a typology report that you folks have issued uh, fairly recently. I want you to talk a little bit about that, and then uh, sort of what's what's going on, and what the AML community can can glean from that. What I've what I've told our members is that. Um, uh, at the end of these work streams there will be some additional indicators that there have been obviously a number of them based on your your folks great work with uh, analysts in the banking industry and people from homeland security and other agencies that we've we've issued in the past to look for certain activities that could be indicative of uh, uh, not just money loaning but human trafficking and, and filing suspicious activity reports and, and that's been a, a pretty big focus of a number of folks in the AML industry but Bring us up to speed on that and just if you wouldn't mind just mentioning again the typology report where where we can get a copy of that it's on, up on your site and then just what's happening what you hope what you hope the result will be of this uh, of, of these work streams.
1: Yeah so the typology report for those of you who aren't familiar um, we essentially. Polaris you know, has been working on on trafficking for a while now, fifteen years, um, and we had noticed that the conversations about trafficking were somewhat, um, maybe, not nuanced enough. We were receiving so many cases of situations of trafficking through the hotline. I think we're close to forty thousand now in ten years, um, and. The circumstances and what was being reported to us had huge variations. So domestic workers who are held in a home versus um, agricultural workers versus someone in a a sex trafficking situation, their experiences are incredibly different and the way that those businesses operate is incredibly different. So we really felt like the counter-trafficking movement hadn't had enough of a nuanced approach in understanding. Those differences and creating, um, creating interventions that were a little bit more targeted. Um, so we we took a step back. We looked at you know at the time it was thirty five thousand cases. We're we're closer to forty thousand now, um, and essentially uh, saw twenty five distinct types of trafficking that were operating in the U S. Um, which we put out a report on uh, last March. It's on our website, polarisproject.org. Um, and it kind of goes through the industries and types of trafficking that we're seeing that kind of each one functions quite differently and understanding those nuances is really significant. Um, so the next step now, and, and the work we're doing in the financial sector, which is really exciting, is to start creating more nuanced and targeted indicators based on the type of trafficking. So. What David has been talking about you know, is very specific to the industry of agriculture. What would be suspicious for an agricultural business is going to be really, really different than what's suspicious for maybe an individual pimp who um, you know, advertises on Backpage and rents a lot of hotel rooms and, and that sort of thing. Um, and We want to put out indicators for each of those types. Um, agriculture is one that has in many ways eluded the, the financial uh, the AML sector for a while. Um, it's been hard to figure out um, how to see some of these, these activities in financial records. So, we're going to um, take that on as one of our first kind of working groups where we have a group of analysts from different financial institutions who are willing to kind of go through the nitty gritty details of how this operates and figuring out how it could be seen in financial records. So that's um, one of the ones that we're particularly excited to jump into. Um, Another of the working groups is going to be taking on illicit massage businesses, which is a very different type of crime and functions quite differently. Um, And one where I think a lot of the AML community has a little bit more of a baseline experience with it. Um, but we want to expand based on those indicators, based on all of this research that we've been doing to make sure that they're um, as effective as possible to identify bad actors, but also just to make the system more efficient. You know, if you're issuing a million SARS, um, FinCEN doesn't necessarily have the capacity to go through all of those. So when a SAR is issued, we want it to be as likely to be a, a, a hit as possible. Um, just to make the whole process more streamlined. So
0: g- going back to the uh, the massage parlors, I know we talked about this in the meeting that we had here a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that you folks mentioned was uh, an entity would close down once it was discovered or they thought they were being discovered and open up fairly quickly <laughs> under another name. And so part of that tells you that the due diligence at the state or local level in terms of licensing is 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 pretty bare bones, to say the least. And I know we're having a broader discussion in the financial sector, in the AML sector, regarding shell companies and beneficial ownership. So it so, sort of uh, tracks that those themes and that concept. Uh, but I know that for you folks, it's pretty important that uh, state and local officials be told that the current way of licensing and handling entities is not acceptable because of the collateral damage that occurs in places like this. Do you want to talk a little bit about your efforts there because I said because obviously in the AML area we are we are going to have a new regulation next May on beneficial ownership. But that's a broad based issue obviously that affects a lot of things. It's not designed to deal with this issue per se, but what you what you guys talked about really resonated with me because it's pretty clear that uh, in many of these states, there is little or no due diligence done when somebody wants to create an LLC or create a company mm-hmm. of some sort. And the fact that they can close down and open up fairly quickly under another name is just baffling. But I guess you guys have been sort of not used to it, but you've seen it for quite a while, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this has definitely kind of been the um, (laughs) whack-a-mole game in the trafficking sphere of these businesses closing down and reopening often in the exact same location with a different name, you know, a a couple months later. Um, We've spent a tremendous amount of time looking into the business records of, businesses which um, front as massage businesses, but at, at least advertise online um, as offering commercial sex, sexual services, um, which a lot of people don't realize this, but the, the oper- they operate almost completely in plain sight. Um, you can go to some really um, interesting websites um, and actually you know, look up any city, and it's kind of like a Yelp review of um, of massage businesses that offer commercial services in that city, um, so we, we started with a list that is very publicly available um, from some of these sites like rummaps.com and started to go through the business records of um, these different businesses and who's listed as um, you know the registered agent, the owner. Um, that sort of thing, and then trying to map out connections through phone numbers, through shared addresses, through names, people. Um, And it's been tricky um, for a lot of reasons, but when you start looking at all these records, you definitely definitely realize that the state, it it seems like signing up for a business and incorporating in a lot of these states is maybe more of like a of formality um, because anyone who did any sort of like real due diligence check would start seeing these very suspicious activities a lot of the business records you know there's no one actually verifying that the information submitted is correct um, it's kind of like self-reported how much um, income your business makes how many employers employees you have that sort of thing um, and as a result um, These businesses just really aren't being regulated, really, um, in any way. Um, Yeah, so we've been working a lot kind of in in different sectors, but including with with local actors um, to revise some of these code enforcement laws um, to... To try and regulate this industry a little bit more, um, and make sure the the businesses that are you know fronting as massage businesses but really are brothels um, are detected more easily and maybe don't have the same kind of leeway to operate.
0: So communication obviously is key here. Um, as we sort of wind this down, a couple things I want to ask. First, uh, David, how did you get involved in in this issue? I mean, obviously this is a this is a very focused organization and you guys have done a tremendous amount of excellent work how did how did you come about uh, joining polaris
2: no, very interesting uh, the issue has always been very close to me um just ha- having had personal contact with individuals who had been in a trafficking situation um, i used to be a high school teacher history high school teacher and i taught a student who had arrived to the United States um, in the recent wave of teenagers who were just coming here trying to flee uh, crime in their country, and he ended up in a trafficking situation at the border. He crossed over illegally, but the organization, it was a criminal organization that crossed him over, actually forced him to cross over um, illicit packages on their behalf for him to be free and uh, get into the United States. What happened for him, luckily and unluckily, is he was actually caught by Border Patrol, he was sent to a detention center, um, and he was able to, he, he was processed and then taken to almost like a place that a family in Massachusetts, and I was teaching him in a writing course that, during the summer where he wrote the story out, and I, then I asked him personally, tell me more about it, and wanting to learn more about the industry and how I could make a difference is what brought me to Washington, D.C where I got my master's in international security and almost every step of the way while I was getting my master's I had an internship in this field whether it was doing research in Bangkok, Thailand on Mm -hmm. sex trafficking or also in Medellin, Colombia on the issue as well so kind of just been very emotionally invested in the topic for a while. Wow. Sarah, how about yourself?
1: I don't have as good of a story as (laughs) David does. I had been uh, working um, in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, I got my masters from Georgetown in that, um, and then after grad school I was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself um, and saw this, uh, I, I was interested in human trafficking just from some documentaries and some, some different reading, I, but I saw a position to actually answer the phone on the national hotline. Um, and having worked for a, a congressperson before and answered her phone and her, you name it, I heard it on that mm. phone and <laughs> was pretty good at just re- thinking on my feet and responding to the situation, I thought, hey, I think I could probably be pretty good at on a crisis helpline. Um, so I started working here seven years ago, and um, I'm still here. <laughs> still so fine.
0: for folks that are listening to this, and obviously you've given us some really good information how can uh, individuals uh, get involved in this in this subject? Uh, you know, what I've seen from some of the bankers that I've talked to, there's sort of regional anti-trafficking groups that have been pretty robust. We have a board member who's been active in Missouri uh, and done a lot of stuff with local law enforcement and organizations. We also had uh, and have Banks in Toronto that have worked closely and created something called Project Protect, mm-hmm. which is with the Royal, uh, the Mounties, and uh, other aspects of the government there. So they've sort of taken these issues and ran with them, like you folks are doing. If somebody wants to know more, obviously go to the website. But what would you uh, what would you recommend? Is it better to do something sort of the grassroots level, to work something national, international? Sarah, what you know? If somebody called you and said, "Hey." Not, I have free time, but I really want to do something in this space. Mm -hmm. What what can I do?
1: I mean, I think the financial industry is in such a unique position to intervene on this issue um, using the expertise that those individuals have and um, really um, making a point to learn about trafficking, its various forms, how it can manifest extremely differently, and then trying to challenge yourself to think, okay, how could I potentially see this in my work in financial transactions that maybe I'm not thinking of right now. I think it does take quite a bit of creativity but um, I think learning as much as you can about the details of how these networks operate may make some of those indicators a little bit more obvious and Polaris is definitely really dedicated to trying to supply that information to financial institutions and work collaboratively to come up with those indicators so anyone who's interested in Participating in in that effort is welcome. Um, But then, of course, you know, just on an individual level outside of someone's professional um, career, I think there's a lot of opportunity um, in, um, you know, finding out who are the local actors within your community. So if you go to our website, we do have a referral directory where you can search a city and we'll tell you kind of the top um, entities in that city that are working with survivors of trafficking um, you know you can check out their website see what volunteer opportunities there are and then of course um in the nonprofit sector um resources are always a huge concern so um take a look at who is um working on this issue and you know maybe consider giving a financial uh gift to to support as well because Um, there's a lot to be done um, and sometimes it can be it can feel frustrating to feel like oh I have so many ideas there's so much that could be done if only you know we had we had a little bit more capacity so
0: well David and Sarah I want to thank you for taking the time and um, you know I think the the good news is is that the financial sector is is on board and the challenge for all of us is to figure out ways to, to keep them in both engaged but also learn from one another so we'll be doing more about this uh, going forward but really thank both of you for taking the time today. Great,
1: thank Thank you you. so much.
0: That was a lot of information to process. The good news is there's much more information available to all of us uh, whether you go on the Polaris website which is polarisproject.org and it will have the typology report that was mentioned or the ACAMS website which we have a, a resource page dedicated to uh, a number of things related to human trafficking and smuggling. What I thought was pretty interesting here is when uh, David Medina talked about the issues with uh, the agricultural community, I don't know how many of us were really aware of how people are taken so advantage of uh, in those various scenarios that he laid out. He did provide some really good information there, and I know uh, that a number of financial institutions have been in contact with Polaris. Um, wanting more so that they can report uh, possible violations of law occurring uh, with any uh, of their customers. Going back to the uh, work streams that uh, talked to Sarah about, uh, obviously uh, the financial sector uh, has a lot of information they can bring to the table, but I think what's really important here is sort of the um, the private-public partnership. Polaris is not Public per se, but as as Sarah mentioned, they obviously get some funding from the government. That national um, hotline, which is so important, uh, of a place for victims to uh, to call and uh, talk to Polaris staff and provide information and hopefully get the help that they need. I think all of that becomes extremely important to to think about, especially as we uh, you know we end twenty seventeen. You want to end it on a note of uh, optimism, and I think. From an optimistic standpoint, I am certainly comforted by how strong the financial sector has stepped up here. And I know there'll be a lot more about this uh, in the years to come. So if you're interested in helping Polaris, please go to their website. If you want more information on what the AML community is doing, please go to ACAMS.org. This is John Byrne wishing everybody a great holiday season and new year. And we'll talk to you again soon.